Holy, 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 holy understatements, Batman. The old pilot's plain tales. The Fat Bomb. Necessity is the mother of invention, and this proverb has been with us, at least in Latin, since at least 1519. No period is the imperative for invention more important than during war, where failure to innovate and adapt is likely to lead to ruin. So the annals of World War II are full of references to the weird and wacky suggestions that inventors came up with. The military of various countries pursued many of these strange ideas in the hope that they might give them a technological edge. Even if you didn't hear my earlier tales about the bouncing bomb, you will know that some of these weapons proved to be remarkably successful. Most, however, were something else entirely. A dentist from Irwin, Pennsylvania, once went on a trip to the Carlsbad Caverns National Park, home to many bats. He learned that bats were a. strong flyers, and b. roosted before dawn, often in the eaves of houses. Putting these facts together with his views on the construction of buildings in Tokyo, mainly wooden, he devised a dastardly plan. The Bat Bomb. I suspect that his invention would have been relegated to a dusty corner of some enormous filing room near the incinerator, except for one fact. Our dentist knew the First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt. Having a direct line into the most famous government building in the United States ensured that his idea got a jolly good airing there. His letter reached the White House a few weeks after the attack on Pearl Harbor, and in it he explained that the bat was the lowest form of animal life, and that until now reasons for its creation had remained unexplained. He went on to espouse that bats were created by God to await this hour, to play their part in the scheme to free human existence and to frustrate any attempt of those who dare desecrate our way of life. This part of God's, or perhaps Darwin's, great plan apparently needed no more explanation, and despite feeling the need to explain that, this man is not a nut, it sounds like a perfectly wild idea, but is worth looking into. The President personally approved the development of the dentist's idea. With presidential authorization in hand, the dentist assembled workers for the project. These included Von Bloka and his assistant Jack Kufa, a pair of bat lovers a lobster fisherman, a weightlifter, an actor, an ex-gangster, and a former hotel manager, amongst others. Together, they set about developing the tooth-puller's invention. The concept revolved around the bat's natural instinct to huddle in the rafters of buildings once the sun came up. 
if thousands of bats could be dropped over Tokyo, each wearing a tiny incendiary device combined with a timer, then, as dawn came, they would hide in the dark corners of the highly flammable Japanese houses, offices and factories, waiting for the moment to set them alight, accompanied by the aroma of grilled bat. How this was an improvement on the already well-established conventional incendiary bomb wasn't made entirely clear, but the persuasive orthodontist submission stated, A proposal designed to frighten, demoralise and excite the prejudices of the people of the Japanese Empire. Outlining what he called a practical, inexpensive and effective plan. He theorised that bombers could carry millions of the winged firestarters to their targets. The government's reaction to the idea perhaps wasn't surprising, since it was already researching other strange projects, like pigeon-controlled missiles and such. In the heat of wartime, anything that sounded even halfway feasible was at least taken under advisement. With a green light to proceed, most of the team enlisted in the Air Force, gaining acting ranks which gave them an air of authority. To be fair, our tooth-puller also had some experts on board. The bat-lovers were mammologists, and Harvard chemist Dr Theodore Pfizer, the inventor of napalm, would join the team. They started to tackle the practical problems that faced the development of the bat bomb. The bats needed to be chilled into hibernation so that they could be flown to the target area. Hundreds, if not thousands of bats had to be fitted with a tiny bomb which could be accurately timed to go off at the right moment. They had to be delivered to the city without injury so that they could disperse and fly to places of concealment where they would give their lives in the cause of freedom. The idea of killing millions of bats wouldn't fly very far today, but the team rationalised the loss to nature, saying that a million bat bombs could save a million lives. <laughs> After rigorously testing several species, the project crew settled on the Mexican free-tailed bat to carry their incendiaries. Largely concentrated in New Mexico and Texas, the free-tailed bat population numbered well over 50 million, and nearly 9 million of them were thought to reside in the Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico. Since the caverns were overseen by the United States Park Service, they had to receive special permission to venture into the caves and harvest large batches of the creatures. But after all, there was a war on. Tests revealed that these tiny creatures, weighing only half an ounce, about 14 grams, could carry more than their own body weight in payload, so tiny tubes made of cellulose and filled with napalm were glued to their fronts. They planned to deliver these teensy-weensy warriors in a hollow, bomb-shaped carrier, about five feet long and two and a half feet in diameter, 
That's one and a half by 0.75 metres. Inside were 26 trays of bats, loaded like eggs in a crate, until the device was full with over a thousand animals. When dropped, the bomb would fall to around 4,000 feet, when a parachute would deploy, slowing the descent, and then the sides would be blown off, releasing the agile arsonists to set the city below alight. Comparisons with conventional incendiary bombs were waved aside with the assurance that a conventional attack might start 400 ground fires, whereas the bat bombs could ignite nearly 4,800, a 12-fold increase. The development of this novel weapon didn't go entirely smoothly. During a less-than-spectacular trial at Muroc Lake in California, 6,000 bats were deployed in a number of bombs. Carrying dummy incendiary devices, some of the bats failed to wake from hibernation and slept their way to destruction, while others chose to fly away into the sunset, never to be seen again. What was worse, at the Carlsbad Army Airfield, half a dozen fully armed bats escaped and roosted under a fuel tank. Unable to tell Japanese military equipment from that owned by the US Army, the bats did their duty and incinerated the test range buildings, watchtowers and barracks. Undeterred, the bat bomb team were buoyed up by the apparent effectiveness of the weapon, and although the Air Force had by now washed their hands of the bat guano and the project, the Marines took it forward as Project X-Ray, dropping the weapon onto a mock-up known as the Japanese Village at the Marine Air Station El Centro in California. Observers were somewhat impressed, and the report that followed stated, A reasonable number of destructive fires can be started in spite of the extremely small size of the units. The main advantage of the units would seem to be their placement within the enemy structures without the knowledge of the householder or fire watchers, thus allowing the fire to establish itself before being discovered. More tests were planned, but finally Fleet Admiral Ernest King put a stop to it when costs topped $2 million and the projected combat-ready date had gone back to mid-1945. Our inventive dentist complained that a general had told him that funding for the bat-bomb was going elsewhere. It's the silliest nonsense you ever heard of, he said. That nonsense was the atomic bomb research, then underway at Los Alamos. The United States didn't have a monopoly on strange wartime ideas. An adventurous English journalist, Edward Pike, who had been a war correspondent during the First World War and interned by the Germans, came up with an idea to construct aircraft carriers out of ice. At the time of his idea, he was in the United States during World War II, helping to organize the production of M-29 Weasels, a tracked vehicle built for operations in snow by Studebaker. 
a friend of Lord Mountbatten, the Chief of Combined Operations, he sent his proposal via diplomatic bag for Mountbatten's eyes only, who in turn passed it on to Churchill, who sounded enthusiastic about it. Materials needed for the construction of conventional aircraft carriers, particularly steel and aluminium, were in short supply. So Pike suggested an enormous block of frozen ice, either a natural iceberg or a manufactured one that could be constructed. This would need only 1% of the energy required to build a metal one. The idea was actually a recurring one. In 1940, an idea for an ice island was circulated around the Admiralty, but was treated as a joke by the officers there, who circulated the memorandum that gathered even more caustic comments. The project would have been abandoned had it not been for the creation of piecrete, a mixture of wood pulp and water, which, when frozen, was stronger than plain ice and much slower to melt. Pike may well have got the idea from the Inuit sledges made from ice and reinforced with moss. Secret tests were made in the frozen meat lockers under Smithfield Market in London, and a decision made to build a large-scale model at Jasper National Park in Canada. This small prototype, only 60 by 30 feet, that's 18 by 9 metres, weighed 1,000 tonnes and was constructed and kept frozen by a little one-horsepower motor. The Canadians were confident about constructing a vessel for 1944 and the necessary materials were available to them in the form of 3,000 tonnes of wood pulp 25,000 tonnes of fibreboard insulation, 35,000 tonnes of timber, and 10,000 tonnes of steel. Initially, the cost was estimated at £700,000 sterling each, but then the problem of cold flow, the tendency of the ice to slowly deform, became apparent, and the design continually changed to include more insulation, cooling infrastructure and steel reinforcement. With the cost estimates now approaching two and a half million pounds, the Navy insisting on a raft of additional requirements, projections for completed ships began to move far into the future. In addition, with the increase in resources needed, it became apparent that conventional carriers were going to be considerably cheaper. The project was shelved, but not before a demonstration was made of Pycrete's strength at the 1943 Quebec Conference, with Churchill and Roosevelt observing. Lord Mountbatten entered the project meeting with two blocks and placed them on the ground. One was a normal ice block, and the other was Pycrete. He drew his service pistol and shot at the first block, which shattered and splintered. Next, he fired at the piecrete to give an idea of the strength and resistance of the material. The bullet ricocheted off the block and buzzed around their legs like an angry bee, grazing the trousers of Admiral King and finally ending up embedded in the wall. 
Perhaps animals were the answer after all. Not bats this time, but the aforementioned pigeons. Project Pigeon used the bat bomb. Uh, no, no, not that bat bomb. The anti-shipping missile N2 bat. The missile was basically a small glider with wings and tail surfaces with a warhead built into the centre. Dropped by a bomber, it would glide into a fleet and hopefully sink enemy ships. The biggest problem was guidance. Worry not. Trained through associative learning processes, between one and three pigeons would be stationed in front of lenses mounted in the nose of the glider. The birds were trained to recognise a target, and so long as it remained in the centre of their windows, they didn't have to do anything. If it moved to one side, however, they would peck at the edges of their screens, which then activated the flying controls to bring the target back into the centre, keeping the missile on course. The inventor, animal behaviourist Murray Skinner, was given $25,000 by the National Defence Research Committee to develop his ideas. Despite finding pigeon-guided missiles both eccentric and impractical, Skinner, who had some success with the training, complained that the problem was that no one would take him seriously, and it was cancelled in 1944. However, some ideas never die, and it was revived by the Navy in 1948 as Project Orcon. Although Orcon lingered on for several years, with a coup of relief, the pigeons were superseded by electronic guidance systems in 1953. There were plenty of other dubious weapon ideas out there, including the Fugo hydrogen balloon bombs launched by the Japanese as the very first intercontinental weapons. 9,300 of these firebombs were launched to float across the Pacific at altitudes above 30,000 feet in the prevailing winter jet streams. They used an automatic system to discard ballast if they flew too low or vent gas if they were too high. After three days of flight, it was estimated that they would be over the United States and a timer released the weapon either a high explosive or an incendiary bomb. The balloon would then self-destruct. There was also a plan suggested to use these balloons to deploy biological weapons such as anthrax, but the Emperor Hirohito would not allow such use. Out of the thousands deployed, they caused only six deaths, all from inquisitive people who found balloons which had malfunctioned and landed, fiddling with them until they exploded. A final weapon worth mentioning was the Nazi sun gun. In World War II, a group of German scientists had the idea of creating a superweapon that could burn entire cities or boil an ocean. All they had to do was launch a huge reflector made of metallic sodium with an area of over three square miles, that's around nine square kilometers, and use it to focus the heat of the sun onto their enemies. 
After being questioned by American officers at the end of the war, the Germans claimed that had the war only lasted another 50 or 100 years, they would undoubtedly have been able to win. If you enjoyed these stories, then please leave us a review. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.